from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello, and welcome to Terra Informa. I'm Shelley Jodouin, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week's episode is all about taking care of the world around us. We'll hear from trail runner turned environmental activist Cheryl Savard about responsible recreation and author Layla Darwish about bioremediation. All of that is coming right up after some environmental news headlines. This week, Canadian Environment and Climate Change Minister Catherine McKenna announced the Great Lakes Protection Initiative, which will provide almost $9 million of funding over four years to various protection and restoration projects in the Great Lakes Basin. The government said that the funding will restore areas of concern, prevent further damages, and engage the surrounding public and Indigenous peoples. In other news, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy and GRAIN, two nonprofit organizations, released a report last week that reviewed emissions from the world's 35 largest meat and dairy companies. They found that the top five of those companies, quote, are now responsible for more annual greenhouse gas emissions than Exxon, Shell, or BP, end quote. Those are all large global fossil fuel companies. Furthermore, they found that only four of these companies provide, quote, complete credible emissions estimates, end quote. And now, our main piece for the week. Terran former Hannah Cunningham spoke with Cheryl Savard, founder of the local group Edmonton Trail Runners and race director of the biannual River Valley Revenge Trail Race. They discuss what it means to be a responsible recreationist in your local public spaces. Here's Hannah Cunningham with that story. Hi everyone, my name is Hannah Cunningham and I'm a volunteer with Terra Informa and I'm also a trail runner. So I'm going to be sitting down with Cheryl Savard, who is the founder of the Edmonton Trail Runners group and also a race director for um, a race called River Valley Revenge that takes place in the Edmonton River Valley a couple times a year. And we're going to sit down and have a chat by the campfire after doing a little group run through the River Valley. I guess, do you want to just explain a little bit about what ETR is for people who don't know? Edmonton Trail Runners is um, an all-trail running group based out of Edmonton and area. Um, And so we started um, up because there was... I live in the West End and there was no group that just runs trails in the West End. And there's lots of road running groups, but there was really... It was just a felt need. And I was looking for, honestly, just... A half dozen people, including my husband, who had just started running trails, to run some trails with me, really for safety and for enjoyment. I like meeting new people, and I was also looking to create a group um, for every person and every pace. Uh, I'd been running five years and was always a mid-packer, but my husband, he started running, turned out to be really fast. And what we noticed was he was getting a lot of invites to run a lot that other people weren't getting and doing a lot of adventures because of his pace. And we, he and I both weren't okay with that. We said, well, there should be an opportunity for people to come out at every pace 
from every background, new people and familiar people, and feel welcome and be able to run trails together. So that was the impetus for creating it. So one of the reasons that I wanted to do this piece was I did the 25K at the most recent River Valley Revenge, which is a race that you put on here in Edmonton. And I... I think you had said at one point that this year's race, there was a real increase in participants over other years, but I still noticed that there was really that attention paid to keeping the integrity of the trails and wanting to protect the trails. So I wanted to know how do you make sure that the trails are still protected and really keep in people's minds the health of our river valley? Yeah, those are great questions. And um, I actually sit on a, a stakeholder group for the River Valley that we come from every background. So we come from people that would like to see the trails never used because they're really committed to the flora and the fauna. And then we've got people like mountain bikers who use the trails, you know, in, in a you know really aggressive, engaged fashion. But I think we all recognize that we're committed to a natural river valley. And so we've come together with a shared vision to say, you know, what can we do to work together for that? And so for Edmonton Trail Runners, um, we use trails that exist, which are often mountain biking trails, or they might be um, old animal trails or old trails that were just grown over from years ago. And um, we, when we started growing a lot, especially during the race, um, what we didn't want to do was to be interrupting the trails. And so we see ourselves as as visitors and guests of the trails. So our philosophy is that that we are engaging and interacting with the trails as we find them so we don't if a log falls like we had a big storm on friday there's lots of fallen logs in the trails tonight we see that as an opportunity to increase our fitness and our agility and mobility versus moving the logs or people going in and taking saws and cutting them out um, if there's overhanging trees we duck below them we don't trim anything for the race and then we've always said we'll never grow the race beyond um, 400 people and 400 people meaning not everybody's doing exactly the same course right just to protect use of the trails the other thing we do is we change the course every year so we have a hundred miles of trails all through the river valley which gives us lots of options so what it means is that people don't necessarily know the course until race day and we've just encouraged people to embrace that as the adventure that this is really not about what's familiar and known this is about interacting with nature in the way that we receive it and in a way that's respectful and protects and preserves it and so and we also give rules around this is the type of wildlife you'll expect and this is basically what you do is you give them as much space as possible and we don't um, try to interfere with them because we see porcupines and moose and um, beavers and all of those I would consider can be friendly or dangerous depending on and so we try to give them all kinds of space and really respect where we're running. I've been popping in and out to different ETR events and stuff like that for probably like six months and what I've noticed is that Edmonton Trail Runners are a really inclusive um, and positive community and really encouraging people of all levels to get out and enjoy the River Valley. A problem that I know I sometimes have, especially when you go to busy places like national parks and stuff, like we were on a mountain run yesterday and there's tons of people out there at summertime. Something that I find myself doing is getting protective of the trails that you know and love. And I think that for me at least, sometimes it's easy to see people being disrespectful or see signs of disrespectful behavior like picking having to pick up other people's garbage and stuff like that yeah. 
So I was wondering how, just because I see such a, for newcomers to the sport of trail running, yeah. through Edmonton Trail Runners, I see such a welcoming and educational environment and really teaching people how to respect those trails through explaining why you design the courses the way that you do, for example. How do you change from being, say, judgmental from people who don't necessarily know how to respect those trails, changing that into a positive attitude about really encouraging people to, everyone to get out and everyone to respect the River Valley? We take a real educational component to interacting with nature and we've had some people that are learning what that means to respect nature and the easiest way for us to educate people has actually been through uh, River Valley Revenge because we have a captive audience where we can talk about what it means to leave no trace and the first race that I took over which was about two years ago when I became the race director we really when we were cleaning up we did find not very many but we found like some gels on the trails and we would just post we would take pictures and post and be like you know guys great job we can do better and we tried to raise awareness and we've also been really intentional with the type of race we're running which will attract people that we find typically are trying to interact very respectfully with nature a lot of what we do is we lead by example so Todd Savard uh, my husband and also the course designer for River Valley Revenge uh, he has personally carried out um, probably 50 to 100 full garbage bags of garbage each year just off the trails and even tonight like I was on the trails running with the group and I found a bottle on the ground and picked it up and and then what happens is people are with us and they see us doing that and then they'll run and they'll see some garbage and pick it up and so try to do a lot of leading by example we've had our own bad experiences when we when I started Edmonton Trail Runners there have been people who came long before me who were really not happy to see a trail running group starting that was going was trying to be active in their trails and of course mm -hmm. that's they're like I've been here 20 years and I grew up in Edmonton and you know and I got friends sending me emails saying you know don't appreciate what you're doing and like you're ruining the trails for the rest of us and so it's that challenge of I understand their concern that they're we're going to bring in new people who don't know how to care for the trails mm -hmm. but at the same time we're like you know, who came first? I don't really think anybody owns it. And so it's about being stewards, not owners. And great example of passing on that information is I always treat people as you just don't know. So I don't think most people are trying to be idiots, right? I think they, I think they just aren't thinking beyond that moment or themselves to like, what's the impact? And so we were out running um, the ridge um, and golf ball alley, me and my family. And it was the middle of the day on a really hot 30 degree day. And we popped out and there's like these teenagers and they were sitting at the Outlook and they had brought dragged in some lawn chairs and while I'd been running in I'd been picking up some slurpy containers and sticking them in my pack and they came across these guys and they were relaxing and I I was like hey guys you know good to see you great to see you out here enjoying the trails and the views it's totally awesome can you just remember to carry out everything you carried in and I was holding a bunch of stuff and one of the guys was like uh, I think that slurpy is mine I should take that and they were like who do you run with and what do you do and this is really cool and we didn't think that we were we thought we were the only ones out here we didn't think other people came out here mm. so it was just a great example of people realizing the world is bigger than themselves right yeah so sort of on that I guess of being part of a sport that utilizes and sort of requires these public spaces do you think that a sport like trail running 
should go hand in hand with activism and support of the protection of these public spaces. I think that if we're going to be active trail users in nature, you don't expect to become an activist. But I was saying recently to my husband, the more that Edmonton Trail Runners grows and the more that we become collaborative partners with other um, trail users and River Valley users, the more passionate I get about the environment in a way that I never thought. And so what's been interesting is I started Edmonton Trail Runners to create a, you know, this open, friendly space for people to run trails together. And it's turned into, um, of course, I never expected it to grow past a half dozen. I mean, I think on Facebook we have 2,000 following us now. And so I, I was like, ah, I wasn't planning for that. Um, and But as I've met initially people that were concerned that saw us growing really quickly and that's community groups as well as you know I've had to build some relationships with the city with the province and so as we've gotten more attention and people have expressed sometimes concerns and I've had the opportunity to use that to build relationships we've started to have those bigger conversations about wait a minute did you know that they're trying to build this high-rise here and that that would affect the river valley and did you know they're trying to build this and this here and it's a really cool concept but it's actually going to tear up all of our natural environment and you start to go whoa wait a minute uh, there's a much bigger picture here than just my little world and so it's hard not to become really passionate about protecting preserving the the environment right so any tips in terms of that sort of getting involved in becoming an activist for your own local public spaces um, do you have any tips on how people can get started with that in terms of getting involved with protecting and preserving the amazing river valley we have i'll be honest that i'm like i'm not an educated environmentalist so i go to like on behalf of edmonton trail runners i go to meetings with the city and with other stakeholder groups and i ask lots of questions and and they ask lots of questions about us but i really rely on people who are much more politically engaged than i have time to be to get me the information and so what i've been saying to people is connect with these groups because they'll tell you uh you know there's a save gold bar project going on uh there's this save the river valley by anthony handy project going on and or did you know that they're planning on you know, converting a, a water treatment plant outside the city and moving it into the city's River Valley. So these are things that I, I would have no way of knowing except connecting. So I say to people, I try to post things and we try to be supportive to say, there's a lot of good things going on in the city. We just want them to be making choices that are conducive with our bylaws and the protection of our River Valley, right? And so um, we just try to tell people, get engaged, get involved. I'll be honest, I do not know how much those like, public engagement meetings actually do anything. I've been to lots of them. They're usually run by junior staff who don't make decisions and don't have the answers. Um, so I think you can have a greater presence by knowing who to talk to and having a voice as concerns are raised. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like to see improve in Edmonton's trail steward community? I would like to see that we have people that actually are more savvy with social media to reach out on environmental issues in our river valley because what we have are 
extremely knowledgeable and educated people that really understand the issues that are going to impact the River Valley or are impacting the River Valley, but they're, they're a different generation. And so we need a younger generation that is going to come in and take those issues and know how to actually bring attention to them. Like the days of picket signs and blockades, I, I, don't, I don't think that's where we're at anymore. And we need, a, we really need people in their 20s and early 30s that understand how to take the relevant issues and how to put the spotlight on them to get the information out there. Any like other quick tips on what do you think are some of the best ways for people to recreate responsibly in the River Valley or anywhere else? I think the best ways we can responsibly recreate is to be communicating and collaborating. Especially like every year there's more and more races and events. Now on the one hand, I love that people are getting out in a way that we've never seen before and enjoying a river valley. On the other hand, you know, I think there's a responsibility on the part of those who are organizing the, these events to work with community partners. Uh, for example, you know, we do our race in some of it in the winter in the White Mud Ravine. Well, I found out from a stakeholder group that they understand sort of the flora and fauna that there's actually an, an eco-sensitive area in Alfred Savage Center area right nearby. And so I've said, okay, can you show us where that is so that we make sure people don't go off course and trample this area that would be very hard to protect and preserve without knowing or you know do we really need the same race every year on the same trails to just wear it down into into rocks maybe you could work with that other group to actually use some lesser known trails and allow this trail to sit fallow for a year right so just more collaboration communication not seeing each other as competition but more as working together to protect the trails awesome yeah I think that's all my questions. Awesome, sweet. That was Hannah Cunningham speaking with Cheryl Savard from the Edmonton Trail Runners Group. If you're just tuning in, my name is Shelley Jablain and you're listening to Terra Informa. Next up is a story from our archives. This one is from a Terran former who has moved on but is still a dear friend of the show and I'm really excited to share some of her great work with you again, dear listeners. Here we go. In a time when spills, leaks, and environmental disasters are becoming more and more common, how do we clean up in a way that's both reasonable and responsible? Prevention, of course, is always the best policy, but even when the best laid plans go awry, and when they do, one answer is often overlooked, bioremediation. Thusmia Nishat speaks with community organizer Layla Darwish, author of Earth Repair, about the healing potential of sunflowers and oyster mushrooms for backyard contamination, big spills, and everything in between. Could you give us an overview of the different types of pollution and pollutants out there that a remediator can tackle? I guess first I'll just say grassroots remediation or grassroots bioremediation is basically working with living systems and different kind of allies in nature to help detoxify and regenerate contaminated and damaged landscapes. And so there's different things that a grassroots bioremediator can work with. You know, people work with either plants and that's called phytoremediation or they work with microbes and bacteria, and that's called microbial remediation, or you can work with fungi or mushrooms, and that's called microremediation. And whether you're working with plants or bacteria or mushrooms, any one of these things, they have the ability to either break down contaminants or kind of pull them up and suck them out of the ground and kind of sequester them. 
So they can either break it down, kind of pull it up or transform it. And that's totally dependent on the type of contaminant or the type of ally you're working with, whether it's a mushroom or plant or a bacteria. So in terms of different contamination, urban areas and cities, people are dealing with things like, you know, having soils that have quite a bit of lead in them or cadmium or arsenic. And that comes from, again, you know, for example, lead, we used to have lead-based paints. And so the lead and the paint would kind of chip off the houses and kind of end up in the soil. Or we had leaded gasoline, you know, kind of more back in the 70s. And that would, again, end up contaminating the soil. Some of the pesticides folks would use would also contaminate soils. There's one plant called the alpine pennycress that's really, really good for lead. And then there's other things like spinach and um, brown mustard, sunflowers. Those are also helpful. Um, trees are really great when it comes to poplars um, and willow, for example, really good at pulling up um, different chemicals, um, volatile organic compounds, um, and they can go deeper. Their roots can get at deeper contamination because the biggest thing with plants is their roots can only kind of clean up the soil as far as their roots go. So if you have deep contamination, so let's say you have an old gas station site and the contamination's lower, you're not going to be able to pick that up with a shallow rooted plant. You're going to have to go for something bigger like a tree. Um, a lot of the grasses also really good for dealing with chemicals and um, things like hydrocarbons. And that's because a lot of grasses and trees, sometimes they're just really good at pulling up the different contaminants, but other times they form really, really good habitat for uh, microorganisms. And it's the microorganisms that are actually doing the breakdown of the hydrocarbons. And when there's things more like oil spills, people tend to be dealing things, deal with things like volatile organic compounds, like benzene and toluene, or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. The oyster mushroom or the turkey tail mushroom are really good at breaking down hydrocarbons. There's another mushroom called the garden giant or the wine cap or kingstropharia. And it's a really neat mushroom because it actually helps plants grow. Um, they tend to grow better with this mushroom in terms of relations. But what it's also really good at is dealing with things like E. coli, right? And, and so if you're kind of, let's say, living near, I don't know, like, there's a lot of farming where you are and a lot of that's going into the water. Like there's like runoff coming from manure and things like that. Working with that mushroom and making some form of kind of micro filter would be really neat. Like oil, diesel, things like that. Could you walk me step by step? For example, if they had a lot with lead in it, what kind of plants would they use as tools and how would they go about preparing them? What you would do is, I mean, first of all, you'd want to find out actually what you're dealing with. And if you have some money and you can do a soil test, that would be great. When it comes to lead, there's several different ways to address it. One of the really good ways is the more organic matter, so the more uh, really good compost you bring in, that can help immobilize the lead. So it's less likely to move up into your plants that you're trying to eat from. So sometimes what folks will do is they'll put a lot of compost on, and they'll also use that to build the soil. Because with something like lead, it tends to stick to the soil and being the soil dust. You also don't want that soil exposed to the air so that it can kind of be blowing around and kind of covering things. So folks bring in a lot of compost. They add something that has phosphorus to the soil because phosphorus does this really neat thing where it can actually further immobilize the lead and then putting mulch on top so you don't see any kind of soil kind of moving up. Another way to handle it is to try to actually pull up lead from the soil with plants. And so in that situation, you would find, you know, from the list of plants that are there, you'd find a plant that's really that's not too bad at pulling up lead. Plant it in rows and as many as you can. And then try to do several cycles of kind of like planting that plant and then removing that plant from the environment. And the one thing is whenever you do something like that, where we call that phyto extraction, where you're kind of 
using these plants to almost be vacuum cleaners. We call them hyperaccumulators where they suck up that heavy metal. The problem with that is that you end up with a plant that now has the lead contamination. And then you have to figure out how are you going to dispose of that because it's not something that you can compost down and spread on your garden because a heavy metal can never be broken down. It can be kind of sequestered. It can be accumulated, but it can't be broken down. So that opens up a whole, what are we going to do on that front? But if you think about how before people would just, again, like excavate all that soil and then truck it away as waste, now people are actually able to kind of take these metals out into these plants and then you have a, a lot smaller volume of contamination that you're actually shipping off the site. So that's one way to do it. But let's say you have chemicals. Maybe you'd be wanting to grow a bunch of grasses and trees. You might want to be working with maybe making mushroom beds or what we call microfilters and using that if we're dealing with contaminated water. I mean, one really neat thing about mushrooms is that if you know how to grow them, because if you don't know how to grow them, you can just buy you know, the mushroom spawn and, and build all your micromedia installations with that. But if you know how to actually cultivate mushrooms at a very early stage of that cultivation, I'm not going to get too complex into this because it just gets weird, but at a very early stage, you can actually train the mushroom to eat the contamination that you're trying to, to kind of get rid of. There's a whole bunch of different ideas and they need people to practice them. They need people to try to get the skills and to actually further expand and invent on that. Do you think bioremediation is being used widely for pollution cleanup? And if not, why do you think so? I don't think it's being used very widely. There have been, you know, government testing and, and companies working with plants and bacteria. But I think the reason why it's not being used as much as it could be is because you have a lot in, in when it comes to cleaning up contamination you have, you know, the companies that are causing the problem and then you have the companies that are cleaning up the problem and they're both making a lot of money one way or another, right? There's a bit of disaster capitalism going on and they, the companies that are doing a lot of the cleanup right now do what we call conventional remediation. And the thing with conventional remediation is a lot of it, it involves a lot of money. It takes a lot of money to do it, a lot of machines. It's more kind of engineering and it's, it's kind of, yeah, engineering kind of, using chemicals and things like that to clean up the problem. But oftentimes cleaning up the problem in conventional remediation, one of the most popular ways to clean up a bunch of contaminated soil is to dig it up and to transport it and dump it somewhere else. And when we do the whole dig and dump where we take this contaminated soil and then we ship it away and then truck in clean soil, we don't have unlimited amounts of clean soil in the world. And then the contaminated soil ends up in somebody else's backyard. And usually the way this works is that it ends up in the backyard of a marginalized community, right? Ends up in a place where, you know, either it's an indigenous community or, a you know, a poor community where people have like more economic issues and they're the ones that have to deal with the toxic dump. And so that's not necessarily a solution, but for a company, out of sight, out of mind. And that's a fairly cheap solution because it's quick, it's done, and now you can move on to getting, you know, your stamp of approval, you clean it up and you can go. Um, so there's things like that. And then a lot of the other solutions that they currently work with for example, you look at conventional oil spill cleanup where they take something like dispersants, which is a chemical that helps the oil dissolve into the water, break up into the water. And what that does is it makes a problem of having an oil slick on the top of the water now kind of move into the whole water column and then into the whole food chain in that area in terms of the aquatic food chain. But for a company, that's great because now you can't see the problem. There's no oily birds or you know beaches that are covered in oil. It's hidden, but now those chemicals and that oil are in everything. 
And you start to see people getting incredibly sick because there's all this research saying that using dispersants actually with oil becomes a way more toxic chemical. And you're starting to see in places like the Gulf of Mexico where they did this in response to the BP Horizon spill, you're seeing horrific health impacts. And it doesn't necessarily clean up the problem, but again, out of sight, out of mind. And then also you have governments that have regulations and liabilities and all this together. People don't tend to necessarily be open to working with things like plants and mushrooms that take a lot longer. The big thing about remediation is it's not something that's quick. It takes longer to do and you know, you kind of have to spend more time with plants and mushrooms than with, you know, machines and chemicals. So I think that's one of the big reasons I think we just have a closed industry and we have people making profit and you don't make as much money doing things like grassroots fire mediation. And I think where the money is, is where the resources go. And so I think in those situations, it falls on the shoulders of those who have the hearts to do the work. And so what can we do to support that? That was Taryn Former, Thesmia Nishat, speaking with Leila Darwish, author of Earth Repair. Taryn Forma is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. Visit us at terranforma.ca and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks this week to our contributors, Amanda Rooney, Jason Wong, and Hannah Cunningham. I've been your host, Shelley Jodwang. Catch you next week. <laughs>